The Bible reading is Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 28. Before we read, I just want to quote on Daniel that we wouldn't read this as a normal book or just words, but we would read it as God actually trying to tell us something and that we take it into account. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramin from Padim Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aram. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. The two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the oldest will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, Loved itself, but Rebecca loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. How are we this evening? Yeah? Cool. Um, now, we have an awesome community here at Parham Baptist Church, and I love being a part of it. So before we jump into looking at the life of Jacob, find some around you. Two questions, okay? What was your highlight from this week? And the second thing is... That's, that's a, come on, that should be an easy one. Uh, the second one is... Throughout the, throughout, throughout the Old Testament, we get uh, all these people who change their names, or God changes their names. So Abram becomes Abraham, Jacob becomes Israel, Sarai becomes Sarah. If you had to change your name, or if you thought God was changing your name, what would it be? Well, welcome to church tonight, everyone. Do we have any really cool names that you wanted to change your name to? Did anyone have any really good answers? You probably don't want to say your own, but you can say the person's the one next to you. Brian, yeah, cool. <laughs> Brianna, just knocking off the last year, yeah, cool. Any other cool ones? Come on, you're a creative bunch. Oh, I see a hand on the back, yeah. Right, okay. There you go, all right, all right, cool. Any, any last ones, last ones? Anna. Anna, oh, that's a good name, yeah, cool. Well, welcome to church. Tonight what we're going to be doing is looking at the life of a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob is a guy who I recognize you probably have heard of before, but whose story you may not know so well, because when I was given this guy, I didn't really know his story, to be honest. But the problem is, this guy's story goes for like 10 chapters of Genesis, which is like a massive chunk. So what we're going to do tonight, and this is going to represent a timeline of Jacob's life, and we're going to go pow, 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 right through 10 important scenes of his life, because afterwards, we're going to break it down within the context of transformation. So if you've been here the last few weeks, you would know that as a church, we believe really strongly that God is, is the one, and he is a God who transforms. He brings about transformation in the lives of everyone who believes in him and follows him. And it's only in him that we can be transformed. That's my testimony, and hopefully that's the testimony of some of you out there, or not, well, possibly all of you. 
But around this faith, this belief that God transforms lives, we've been looking at a series called Ask. And we've just been asking the question of how do we seek that transforming power in our world? How do we ask for it on behalf of others? How do we seek it for ourselves? And how do we approach those places that seemed kind of locked or shut off to, to places or works of God? And that's what we've been looking at. And tonight we're going to bring it to life, this idea of transformation, because this guy Jacob does get transformed by God in a pretty cool, significant way. So... Who's heard the story that Ray just read out of his birth, Jacob and Esau's birth, yeah? A few people. Great. We're going to start down this end with this birth narrative of Jacob and Esau. Now, it's a really strange birth narrative. I've... I was going to say, I've never had twins. It's true, but it's weird. Um, <laughs> Rebecca and Isaac are these two characters in the Old Testament who were introduced to a little bit before Jacob and, I, Jacob and Esau's birth. Uh, and these two characters have been trying to have a child for years and they have failed to fall pregnant until they earnestly are praying to God that he would help them out. And then, finally, she falls pregnant with... Well, she falls pregnant with twins, but she doesn't know it yet. Now, imagine her feelings of, of almost frustration, waiting to get pregnant, and then all of a sudden she's pregnant. Hallelujah, joyful feelings and all. But then all of a sudden something feels wrong going on inside. Anyway, I can imagine she would be completely devastated and really scared. So she went off to, to God and she asked what's happening. And God, he, he spoke into this place saying, what's happening in you? You're having twins. It's a really cool revelation. Uh, and the second thing that was really important is those people with inside you, he referred to them not as people or sons, but he referred to them as nations. So there's something significant that's going to come out of both of these two sons. Now, one is Jacob, one is Esau. One becomes the nation of Israel, the other Edom or the Edomites, which is just a place that rivals uh, Israel for a long time. Anyway, we get this birth story of, of Esau coming out first um, as this little hairy Wookiee-like character who's got hair all over him. And the second um, is of our man Jacob. And Jacob is grasping the heel of his brother, which is a, a bit of a strange thing. Of Yeah, I think that's a strange thing. It doesn't happen. Yeah? I guess it's a strange thing because they wouldn't really mention it if it wasn't. Anyway... The name of Jacob, we're told, means that he grabs onto or he clings to. Um, and if you look at your footnotes in your NIV, if you guys have your Bibles open, uh, you can see uh, it says it's an idiom in Hebrew for deceives. And the word deceives is definitely reminiscent of the life of Jacob for the stories to come. So we're given this birth narrative, but just after the birth narrative, we are told how Esau and Jacob are growing up to completely different people. So Esau, he grows up to be a hunter kind of guy. He likes to go out, hunt animals and eat food, whereas Jacob was more content to stay around the home. There's already this contrast building because the next thing that happens is really important. Now, we have to note that Jacob is the youngest son to Esau by like milliseconds. So the older son, Esau, he has a thing called a birthright. Now, there's a scene that we can read about just after where Ray finished reading. And this story is of Jacob almost, almost tricking, I guess it's not really tricking, but he buys the birthright from his brother. Uh, now Esau, he's out in the fields going hunting, you expect, and then he comes home and Jacob has made this meal and Esau is absolutely famished, he's starving. So he goes to Jacob, give me some food, but Jacob's like, ah, I've got an opportunity here, I've got the power. And he makes this deal with him. He said, I will give you some food if you give me the birthright of being the first child. Right? And that's the deal he started to strike. And Esau, being a little bit hot-headed, probably just jumped in and said, yeah, I'm in. But later on, Jacob was like, oh, this is actually an opportunity. I'm going to make this concrete. So he asks him to make an oath with him. So he makes an oath, giving his birthright to Jacob. It's a bit of a silly thing to do from Esau's perspective, but he does it nonetheless. 
Jacob, I can see, he's like the twists words really well to play with his brother's brother. So we're given this scene of where he takes the birthright of his brother. Now, I want us just to be thinking as we're working through this, what is Jacob's focus on? Is his focus on his brother's welfare? No. His father's welfare? No. The covenant promises that God has made to Abraham back here of land, sons, and well, children, and a blessing to the world? I think his focus is in one place and one place only. That's himself. This next story is a really, really well-known one. It is when he steals the blessing from his brother Esau. Does anyone know this story? Yeah? Okay, it gets kind of gross because he starts wearing some goat skin on his neck and his arms and things, which is pretty gross because whilst Esau is... Oh, sorry, a bit of time no passes and this Isaac, their, their dad, he, he gets a little older and he actually falls blind so he can't see anymore. So he's reliant on his sense of feeling and touch and his sense of smell to kind of gauge who he's talking to and to interact with the world. Um, so he calls Esau in and they're talking to one another and in this conversation he says... What I'm going to do is I'm going to bless you. You're my oldest son, and I'm going to bless you now. But go out, catch some food, Hunter, catch some food, bring it home, cook it, give it to me, and then I will pass my blessing on to you. That's what he says. But Rebecca, Isaac's wife, has a favorite child. I assume it's the real thing. And so does Isaac. Isaac's favorite child is Esau, whereas Rebecca's favorite child is Jacob. So when she hears that Isaac, uh, sorry, Esau is getting this gift from uh, Isaac, she sneaks off to Jacob really cunningly and she says, hey, this is what your dad has said to your brother. He's going to bless him if he goes, gets some food and brings it back. Uh, and because Rebecca loves, uh, loves Jacob more, arguably, uh, she tells him to go to the flock, grab some goats, kill them, cut them, uh, cut them, sorry, didn't mean that part, it's graphic, uh, cook them and then take them to your father and then when you give him the food, he's going to bless you when he's going to bless Esau. And then Jacob's like, there's a pretty big flaw. Like he's blind, yes, but he's not deaf and he can still feel. He's going to feel my skin and go, there's not as much hair as Esau and I'm not going to sound like Esau. And she's like, I've got a great idea. Those goats we're going to eat, Put the skin on yourself so you are really hairy. And he does just that, sneaks into his, his dad's place, gives him food, pretending to be Esau. And long story short, he receives the blessing that, was, uh, that Isaac was intending to give to Esau. Now, if you have your Bible, you can open up. I actually want to read uh, this portion out because there's a good contrast because he blesses Jacob here, but in a few moments he says something as well to Esau. And it sets the scene for the rest of their life. Where are we? Death of Abraham. All right, it's down the bottom of uh, chapter 27, verse 28 we're going to go from. This is what Isaac says to Jacob as he's blessing him, thinking he's Esau. Uh, thinking he's Esau. He says, May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother, your brothers, bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. That's a pretty nice blessing to get from your dad. The thing is, Jacob, it wasn't designed for Jacob. It was designed for Esau. Jacob, he uh, swindled his way in and most certainly deceives his father in taking that blessing. But as soon as he takes the food off his dad or the empty bowls and he takes it out, his brother comes in, Esau, not very happy with what's just happened, 
but he's very unaware of it. He brings food for his father. He says, Dad, I brought you the food. Are you going to bless me now? And his dad's like, what? What are you going on? I just blessed you. And the, you know, it just hits them. Jacob is snuck in here, and he's stolen the blessing that was intended for his older brother. Now, Esau is really frustrated. He's like, why can't you bless me still? And this is the blessing that he passed on. And if you ask me, it sounds a bit more like a curse. Uh, verse, 30, uh, verse 39, chapter 27, it goes like this. Uh, his father Isaac answered Esau, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Now, it doesn't sound as good as, as Jacob's, does it? And that's why the very next verse says that he all of a sudden is developing a grudge toward Jacob. And if you read on just a little bit further, you see that grudge develops into something a bit more than a grudge when he says, my father Isaac, he's going to die, and when we finish mourning for him, what we're going to do is kill Jacob and take that back. Which already, yeah, you can picture the animosity building between these two brothers. Jacob, if he knew about this, would be terrified, whereas Esau is hating on Jacob so much. Let's take stock. Right now, I think these two events are pretty massive pillars of what it meant for what Jacob's life was like at the start of the story. He was focused on not his father, not God, not his brother, not his family. He was focused on himself. He didn't deserve these things. He stole these things. All right, Let's keep that in mind because we're going to move on. After Rebecca finds out that the older brother wants to kill Jacob... It's really hard talking about the two, hopefully you're following along. After Rebecca finds out that Esau wants to kill Jacob, she goes to Jacob and says he wants to kill you, leave. And she sends him to her brother's place. And his, her brother's name is Laban, or Laban, or however you want to pronounce it. And he lives in this place called Haran. So he goes to this place. At first he was fleeing, but he was given another objective, I guess, by his parents, and that was to find a wife. And he goes off to this land. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open up again. We are going to skim down to chapter 29. There's a really cool exchange at Bethel. If you know this story, don't get scared. We're going to come back to it. In chapter 29, he comes to this place, Haran, and he finds the family, and there's this long story of him joining his father and working for his father for years. And he sees his uncle, his uncle, oh, that's strange, uncle becomes father-in-law. He sees his uncle's daughter, and he fancies her. He wants to marry her. Her name's Rachel. And he's like, this Laban guy, he's like, oh, great, I've got an idea. Work for me for seven years, and then I'll give her to you as a wife. And he's like, great, I'll do it. So he works for seven years, poor Jacob. And then after the seven years, he takes her as his wife and finds out the next morning that it wasn't Rachel who was given to him. It was her older sister named Leah which is a bit of a frustration for Jacob, having worked seven years. Seven years is a long time. So he comes to Laban, and he's really furious. He's angry. It's like, you promised me Rachel, but you gave me Leah. What's going on here? And he said, well, it's not our tradition to give the oldest, I mean, the youngest before the oldest, because Rachel is younger than Leah. But I will still give you Rachel if you work for another seven years. So this one happens kind of like credit, because he gives it to her straight away, and then he works the seven years. And after the seven years are up, we see... He starts to build, 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 build. All right. The next one is when he's in this place, Haran with Laban, he starts to build family and build wealth. We get this, uh, this really long passage from, if you have your Bibles, it's like 20, chapter 29, verse 31 through to chapter 30, verse 24. It's a really long uh, story of all the children that are being born to Jacob. Now, Jacob is the father of the 12 
sons who become the tribes, and there's several more. There's a couple of daughters in there as well. Um, so you can imagine this is a long passage just going with who bore who and who gave birth to who. And after he was given all of these children, if we skip over to chapter 30, verse 25, there's this exchange that's happening. Jacob wants to go away, but Laban, he realises that as he's been staying, his family has grown and his wealth has grown as Jacob has been working for him. He makes this connection that God has blessed this guy and this guy has been with us and God has blessed us through this guy. So he doesn't want him to go anywhere. So he says, get back to work. Sort of. He says, get back to work and I'll actually pay you now, okay? I'll give you some of my flock. And there's this exchange of he'll take some of the spotted and, and yeah, not as, yeah, speckled, not as pretty or perfect or first choice animals. Take those ones, build your flock, uh, and you can have that as your payment. So he does that and he's a little conniving because he works out a little system uh, that some guy said actually doesn't work. Anyway, beside the point, um, he thinks it works where he tries to breed people with speckled, I mean, Things with speckled... Anyway, beside the point. After a while, his family has grown and then his wealth continues to grow. But there comes a point where his bro- um, this Laban guy, his sons and Laban himself, they start to murmur. Because this wealth and this prosperity that was coming to Laban because Jacob was with him was now decreasing as Jacob was swindling him. And as this was decreasing... This Laban guy, he was not happy. Well, we assume he wasn't happy. Right at the bottom there, end of chapter 31. No, sorry, beginning of 31. It says, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. This is what the sons are whispering. And Jacob, he hears this and he gets nervous. But God speaks to Jacob. Verse 3, 31. Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. All right? So he already hears, you know, there's this, this guy who's not happy with me. He's, you know, a bit frustrated. Now I'm being told by God to go back to the land I was from. Now the problem with going back to the land I was from, if you remember, was this guy, this Esau guy who he stole this birthright and blessing from, he's still back where he's going to go or where God is telling him to go. So he's got this dichotomy. If I stay here, this guy's getting frustrated with me. If I go back, I'm going to go to a place where my brother is going to hate me and he's actually planning to kill me. Anyway... He picks up his family and out of fear that Laban is going to pick up and, and chase him down, he sneaks off in the middle of the night. He takes his wealth, he takes his family, and they sneak away as fast as possible. And there's this exchange you can read about if you want where Laban, he chases them and then he catches up to them. God's instruction to him was to go home. There's this exchange where he, he gets away and then Laban catches him, father-in-law, catches him and says, why'd you run away? He's like, oh, I was scared that you were going to chase me. Um, And he did. And anyway, they make a covenant to each other saying, we're not going to hurt each other. We're going to be at peace with one another. And then they part their ways. Laban, he goes home, but Jacob, he moves forward into one of the most catalytic moments of his journey. Also one of the most confusing places of his journey, let's be honest. He starts to prepare himself. Because now he's going back to the place where his brother, who wants to kill him, is waiting. So we get this long passage about Jacob, who's preparing himself to meet Esau. Now, recap. He has acquired family. He's acquired wealth that he didn't have when he left. So now he's got all these people and all these things, this cattle, this wealth. Uh, So his plan is, this Esau guy wants to kill me. So what I'm going to do is, I'm cunning, I've got a great idea. I'm going to split everything in half and I'm going to send them kind of in sort of different directions but in the same direction. And in doing that, if Esau's angry, he wants to kill me, he'll conquer one but he'll not conquer the other, right? That's his plan at the moment. Anyway, 
He does follow through with the plan, but I love the prayer that Jacob brings before God. And I wouldn't say this is a moment of transformation just yet, but I think this is a really important illustration of where he's at with God. Let's read it. It's in chapter 32, verse 9. Jacob, he was praying on the precipice of meeting his brother who wants to kill him. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now, oh, sorry, I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now, I think it's really important right now, we're going to actually bounce back a little bit into his story. Because after Jacob fled from his brother who wants to kill him, there's a scene that happens before he gets to Laban. And this scene's pretty, scene is pretty important. He gets to a place, which is later called Bethel, and he goes to sleep using a rock as his pillow, and he has a vision from God. So if you want to flick back, you can. Um, because he sees a, a staircase coming from earth and going up into the heavens, and he sees angels going up and down, and he sees God right at the top. And God says some really important things, especially in the context of the larger Old Testament story. He makes the promises he made to Abraham, and then he reaffirmed to Isaac. Here we go. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are living, promises land. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So we see a nation and we see a blessing. The three things that he's promised to Abraham, the three things he's promised to Isaac. But at this point in the story, all that this guy has done is stolen a birthright and stolen a blessing. And now he's gone through and he's taken stuff from his, his, brother, his father-in-law or his uncle, depending on how you want to talk about him, and then he's fled because he's scared for himself, which is obedience to God. No, it just lined up that way. He was scared for himself, which is why he snuck out. And then here he's preparing to meet Esau and he is petrified. So what does he do? He goes back and petitions the God who had promised him these things. I might be cynical, maybe you are too, but that doesn't seem like genuine faith to me just yet. And there is the craziest little story that comes next, and I totally do not understand its intricacies. It goes like this. After Jacob split up his, his, two, his two groups, his group into two, uh, he sent them across a river, the Jabbok. So Jacob, uh, where is it? After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So J- Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him till daybreak. That doesn't seem like it belongs there. <laughs> that feels like the weirdest little sentence ever. It doesn't make sense. Why did a man wrestle him? Like, dude, come on, come on. Is this not crazy? Like, what is going on here? He has been left alone, and then he gets wrestled with, not just for five minutes, but he gets wrestled with till daybreak, which is a, a long wrestling match with someone who you thought was nowhere near. Anyway, this guy, he's not Esau. If you read on the story, we actually get a little bit of a revelation of who he is. But at first, Jacob thinks he is a man. And they wrestle and they tossle. I'm going to read this passage out to you because maybe you'll have a nice revelation or interpretation of it as well. 
So he wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. That sounds incredibly painful. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip had been wrenched out of place. Is that not a weird story? Just because I'm standing here doesn't mean I know the meaning of it. I promise you. I don't think I can understand the... Why does God send... Okay, it's not God. God isn't the one in this passage. If anything, I believe it's an angel that he's sent down to wrestle with Israel, with Jacob on his behalf. But why does he wrestle with him? Why does he wrestle and not talk? Why does he wrestle for so incredibly long till the morning? What motivated him to do this? What did he think was going to happen in Jacob's mind? I can't tell you the answer to all those questions. But one thing I can do is tell you the impact of this encounter on Jacob. Because as we read this story, it's strange, but we get a determination in Jacob that we have kind of seen before, but it looks very different in this case. He asks for a blessing, and this is a strange thing because it seems like he's going for himself still. He's still championing himself as number one, that he wants to receive a blessing. But a blessing is something that is given from someone who is victorious or someone who is greater to someone who is lesser. So Jacob, within this context, there's like a click moment of him realising he isn't the most powerful here. He isn't the one who can force anything out of this situation. He can't deceive, he can't trick, he can't cheat this person out of this situation. So what does he do? He just holds on. He just clings to him until morning. And we see this, this blessing is granted to him and there's this name change that happens to him. It's a really important encounter where we see a shift happen after this encounter. So he wrestles with God. And after he wrestled with God, he, he does that, that little prayer where he's seen, face, seen God face to face and he has been spared. So he loves God for that. Fast forward a little bit and he wakes up and he sees that Esau is coming. And if you remember, he was being hunted by Esau, sort of. He was going to be killed by Esau. But this encounter that happens isn't one of frustration or one of anger or one of a desire to kill Jacob. When I read this story, I actually get some uh, feelings of uh, the prodigal son. We were talking about the prodigal son a while ago. You know, remember that story of the son who goes off, squanders the wealth, comes back thinking, I cannot be worthy to be in the presence of or the son of, I don't really deserve to be the servant of uh, the, the landowner. But when he comes back, what happens? His father embraces him, chases him down and embraces him. And we see the same thing here with Esau and Jacob. Expecting to be killed or fought with, his brother Esau comes up and embraces him and kisses him. That's not what he expected. Not what he expected at all. But in that moment, he was slightly reconciled with Esau because after that, Esau's like, okay, I'm going to go home. You can come with me now as well. I'll show you the way to go pretty much. Uh, And then Jacob's like, oh, no, 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 it's cool. It's cool, it's cool. I'll work my way out. I've got a big camp. We're going to take a little longer to move along. So you go without me. I'll catch up. And 
Esau listens, he, he takes off, and then Jacob, he starts following and then turns away and finds another place to live, probably out of a little bit of fear that his, uh, his brother wasn't fully forgiving of him. And after this encounter, we get a story about um, Jacob's daughters and his sons going into a town in Canaan. You can read about it if you like, but straight after that, we get a very interesting scene again, where God instructs Jacob to build him an altar. Now, altars are strange nowadays, possibly, especially within the Christian faith. But within the context, in the patriarchs, his fathers, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, they built altars. But usually, the altars were out of spontaneity, or they were out of worship, and they were immediate like that. The interesting thing about this altar was that it was an instruction given to Jacob. And the cool thing is that he responds in faith, and he actually does it. But his instructions to his family uh, before he builds this altar, I think, uh, is probably the most pivotal time where we see the post story of who this Jacob has become. If you have your Bible, we're over in chapter 35 now. I'm going to read from verse 2. After God has told him to go up to Bethel, the place where he made the promise, he uh, told him to go up to Bethel, build an altar, and then Jacob turned around to his household and to all who were with him. Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. That seems like a genuine change has happened, right? There's been false gods, gods from other faiths, idols present in his household. But now, what's his decision? Get rid of them all. Hazza, Ray, Benny Boy, Buff. I need one more volunteer. These guys are going to bring over these A-frames because we're going to get uh, some not-so-artistic seals going. <laughs> Can we have... Is there one more? Yeah, legend. Thanks, Mikey. Now, a couple of weeks ago when Kathy was preaching, she showed a video that was uh, incredibly moving. And if you were here, it was the cardboard testimonies one. Yeah, where people walked up, cardboard, flipped the cardboard. Can you guys also spin around so I can... Thank you. Oh, I love you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Do you want to come this way? Keep coming, keep coming. All right, and just twist it so everyone can see. Awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, or maybe so Kylie can see as well, because we do. We do love Kylie. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, Kathy showed us a video of, of this cardboard testimony thing where, where people came up on the stage, and on a piece of cardboard, they'd written uh, where they were at. And I say that broad and generalised because everything was very different in the context of those people. Some people were suffering from cancer, some people were told that they were never going to live, some people were told that their child was never going to live, some were stuck in, uh, in the yeah, mental illness, and all these different stories. But on the flip side of the cardboard, they would turn over and see what is the, what's the transformation, what did God do in the middle of that circumstance. So over here, I'm going to draw a pre... Cool, <laughs> alright. And then we also need a, we need a post, Jacob, as well. And this one. All right, cool. So if we look at the story of Jacob, we can see a transformation that happens. And I would say this transformation is definitely incredibly pivotal within the context of his life. But this transformation is like the overarching idea. Because his life doesn't look totally different from when we started, right? So over here, he deceived to get a blessing and a birthright. And over here, he deceives his brother when he's going to find where to live, right? Similar sort of idea. He seems like a bit of a jerk, to be honest. Doesn't seem like a whole lot has changed. But there is a big significant transformation that has happened in him that I think is fueled by many different smaller transformations. 
I think the big transformation that has occurred in Jacob's life is he has gone from a place of complete and utter self-reliance to a place of complete and utter dependence on God. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. If we look back over here, I think it's really easy to point out how he was self-reliant, right? He wanted wealth. He wanted power. He wanted the birthright, the blessing of his father. Who's he relying on there? Himself. He swindled, he cheated, he deceived, he didn't earn it. He was relying on himself and he was focused on himself. So, over here, we're going to write the first word, I think, that really categorized this man toward God. And that word would be apathy. That word says apathy, believe me. This Jacob guy is so self-reliant that his focus, his understanding of the world or who is powerful or who he wants to submit to is himself. Where does God fit into that picture? He doesn't. If you're totally and 100% self-reliant, then you are not focused on God whatsoever. But this transformation does happen. He goes from a place of apathy, and I think this is one of the coolest ones. Maybe this is part of your testimony as well. He goes from a place of apathy to a place of worship. Why worship? Because over here, he basically had no comprehension that God was present. But over here, what does he do to all the other gods that were in his, in his house? He chucks them out. He gets rid of them. He doesn't want them in his house because there's only one God who he is going to depend on. Only one God that he wants present in his life. And that is God, Yahweh. The other really important part, I'm going to come back to some passages here, is he goes from someone who was testing God to someone who was trusting God. Trusting God. Who's got their Bible open? If you open up to the story of him being a Bethel, right at the start, where God issues this, this promise of, of what he's promised to Abraham and Isaac already, after he gets promised these things, right at the end, Jacob makes a vow to God. See if this sounds a bit strange to you. He says this, If God will be with me and will watch over me on, his, on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be his house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Something sounds strange about that. It's because he's not saying God is good and I trust in God, but he's saying if God, he's testing God, if God is faithful, if God, if God follows through, if God feeds me, if God clothes me, if God protects me, then he will have earned the right to be my God. That's definitely not who he becomes. Have you ever made that, that ask of God? Ever tested God like that? If God does this, then he will definitely be my God. I've said it. I've thought it and not said it. Are you praying for that friend or yourself? Praying for yourself, not seeing and saying, if, if you heal this God, for sure, I'll be 100% sold out for you. That's, that's a test. That's testing God. But he comes over to a place of trust. Now, one of, one of his sons, Joseph, uh, he's a really well-known character in the, in the Old Testament, he goes up to this place in Egypt and he becomes this high-ranking official. Long story short, they start the Israelites, or Jacob's family, come to Egypt to join him in Egypt. But they don't come straight away. In the moment before they start to come, God comes down to Jacob and he says, go, go to Egypt, I will be with you. 
And this would be completely redundantly silly to Jacob because right now he's in the land that God said, I will give to you and your people, right? He's in the promised land, essentially, just not at the right time. He's in the land. He's like, God has like fulfilled one of the promises, but now God is telling me to go. That's paradox. I don't get that. That doesn't, that doesn't work. But he doesn't question God. He doesn't take it in his own hands. But he walks straight with his sons and his wives and their families and he goes to Egypt, takes them to Egypt. He goes from a place of testing God to a place of complete trust. Here's some other words I'm going to put up here. So apathy, I think, is very closely linked to ignorant. Are any of these words kind of standing out as a place possibly where you've seen yourself at odds with God? The self-testing? Maybe ignorant. By ignorant, I mean he's just totally unaware. He's not looking. This guy does not acknowledge God at all until right at the end. Testing piece, the apathy. What about this side? Does this side resemble at all where you are or where you've come to or have you felt a freedom as you've stepped over to this side or God has made this switch in you? Alongside the trust, I would put the word led. In the beginning of last year, I, I stepped into this interim youth pastor position, which was a very interesting experience, having never done one before. And I remember the first couple of weeks, and I went through, I would say, a big transformation in my mind, in my approach to serving God, that went from over here to over here, from a place of self-reliance to a place of dependence on God. I remember the very first week, I was stressed, and I'd just gone from the move of being a leader to now leading these leaders. And if you don't know our youth leaders... Go find them because they are an awesome bunch of people who are sold out for God, who are passionate for God, who want to lead young people closer to God in every way that they can. Amazing. And I was put in charge. And I didn't feel comfortable, let's be honest. That felt very uncomfortable at first. And I remember the very first week we were doing an encounter night and I was stressed beyond belief and I wrote all all the things that we were going to do for the night. I prepared it all. I lined up people to come and do stuff. Anyway, the night happened and I thought, yeah, okay, it was okay. But the following days that came out after that, I felt this incredible, this incredible guilt. I was like, that was awful. That didn't go to plan. That didn't go well. And that weight stayed there for a while. I was over here, and probably not one of these three. I was, I was trying to do it in my own strength. That would 100% sum up how I approached my first week. Is that how you approach stress, anxiety? That's how I seem to approach it naturally. I go, I'm stressed about this, this, this. What am I going to do? I'm going to start preparing this, this, and this, and I'm going to put all my attention into this, this, and this until this, this, and this are done. And that's what I did. And fast forward a week or two, I realized the guilt, the frustration that I was feeling was because I was on this board and not that one, and I thought I was on that one. I thought no matter what I was going to do, God was going to be working through it, but I didn't actually welcome him into it. So no matter what I did, it wasn't good enough in my mind. No matter what happened, it wasn't what needed to happen. I was in this place of being totally self-reliant. But what I needed to do was actually let go of the control that I had. And uh, this is uh, is strange, but I I don't know how else to say it. But after I realized that, the following two and three weeks, legitimately the best weeks I've ever had in ministry. Legitimately. Legitimately. Because straight away when I realized that I was taking control of everything and I was not depending on God, when I realized that, I knew what had to be done. I had to put God back in that driving seat. I had to put God back in control. And I had to take a step back. I had to depend on him. I really like what you, you shared before, Jane. Do people resonate with this? There's a moment where you almost like doubt this could 
do anything? Have you ever prayed a prayer that you're like, I'm not sure this is actually helping? Have you tried to surrender something to God and go, have I actually surrendered that? Or for me, it was, I was trying to depend on God, so I said, yeah, God, uh, I want you to be at work through this. I don't want to take the wheel. I want you to be in control. It wasn't a feeling of, oh, sweet, you know, God, he showed up right there. I had an awesome encounter. It felt like nothing happened, to be honest. But there was a process, and after days and days of just going, God, you're in control. God, you're in control. God, you're in control. Slowly and slowly and slowly. I professed it. I said it. I spoke it over myself. I prayed it. I asked for others to pray it over me. And slowly and slowly, I came to this place of genuinely giving it to God, of genuinely focusing up on God. And I've got to say, it was one of the greatest experiences and encounters I've had with God. There was just a lightness about it. There was a lightness about it. There was just a peace in my mind, a peace in my heart. Have you ever had that experience? It's an experience I couldn't force, and I'm glad I didn't force because I could never get there on my own. It was like Jacob. He could never move from that board to that board without God. He couldn't jump over himself. He didn't have a reason to jump over himself. And before I said that wrestling match, I have no idea about a lot of things to do with it. Totally true. But you know what the significance of that event was? It was exactly what Jacob needed. And the one person who knew it was God. And the one person who could do it was God. The one person who could speak into that moment was God. The same God we're praying to for transformation. The same God who is transforming lives well beyond Jacob's time. The same God who's going to transform lives well and truly beyond ours. The last thing I just quickly want to say is, as I was looking through this story, I had this, this, this image or this picture of how Jacob was orienting himself before God. Over here, where is it? Stole the birthright. He was born, stole the birthright, stole the blessing. I see this like, image of Jacob looking down into his hands. Right, looking down like this. And the reason he's looking down like this is he's wondering, what have I got and how can I use it? What have I got? Okay, well, I've got my brains. I'm going to outsmart my brother. I've got my food. I'm going to use it over him. Right, what have I got? I'm going to use it. Over here, when he encounters God at Bethlehem, he says, I promised you these things. And he vows, if you show up and do this, you'll be my God. He kind of starts to look up toward God and then goes, mm, no, I've still got control. Because if you don't follow through, then I'm still the one in control. So he looks down his hands. What have I got? What can I do? Family and wealth. This guy, he's looking at his hands. He's tricking his father-in-law. What can I do? Even when he's sent home by God, he's still looking at his hands. You know, There's a moment where God catches his, his gaze because he says, go home, and he listens. But he's scared for himself, so he sneaks out. As he's preparing, as he wrestles, as he is reconciled with his brother, and as he comes to this place of building an altar to God, I just see his eyes being lifted straight up, straight up to God, and coming from a place where he was just looking at himself and what he had. What did he have? What could he do? He lifted his eyes up to God and he said, it's for God and it's from God. A place of total self-reliance to a place of total dependence on God. Does that resonate at all of an experience of your experience, of what it means to walk with God. I find it so easy to look down at my hands and just worry about what I can do and how fast I can do it and how well I can do it. I'm going to find it much harder to look up and actually ask God, what do you want to do? Even when I have to force myself. 
So I guess the question is, like, where, where are your eyes at the moment? Where, where are they looking? Are they looking down? Are they looking up? I love this verse. It just speaks about gaze. From Psalm, it says, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I think that's the crux of it. Over here, if we're relying on ourselves, we're going to be as strong as who? Ourselves. We're going to be as permanent as who? Ourselves. We're going to be as successful or victorious as who? Ourselves. But if we're over here, with our eyes fixed on God, with God at our right hand, what's going to happen? It's not going to shake like us. We're going to be unshakable because God is unshakable. Because God, he's not, he's not going anywhere. Brought about some significant transformation in Jacob's life. He's done this stuff in my, my life plenty of times. So where are your eyes in this? Are your eyes fixed on here, like what can I do? Or are your eyes fixed on God? Because it's really clear what scripture says. Uh, fix our eyes on him. We won't be shaken because of him. Who do you want to attach yourself to? I know in my mind who I want to attach myself to. The process of in the head, in the heart, but a declaration of who God is. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this opportunity we have to come and just spend time in your word. There's a real click moment where it goes from in our head to in our heart. And Father, I just pray, would that just sink, sink down really quick? Lord, we wait on you, we depend on you. God, would you just move in really significant and powerful ways? Show us what it means to keep our eyes fixed on you and to depend on you fully. Because we love you and we adore you, God. You are holy and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless the Lord.